All righty, good afternoon and welcome to the uh, Major Mondays webinar series, February 14th, 2022. Uh, happy Valentine's Day, everyone, and hope you enjoyed the Super Bowl. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about how to predict hemp exposure and defend and settle hemp one claims. So there I am, hello everyone. Uh, as usual, this is a live question and answer webinar. So feel free to post your questions in the little box on the right uh, and we'll get to them at the end. So uh, we'll start with the very, very basics here. So what is the health insurance matching program? Well, it comes from workers' compensation law sections 13A, 13D, and 13H. Uh, and you can find the full hemp rules and regulations in uh, 12 NYCRR 325.5 and 325.6. Uh, so this is how the health insurer gets reimbursed for treatment that should have been the responsibility of the workers' compensation carrier to pay. Allegedly, that's what they like to tell us. Uh, what's the timing for one of these? Well, they have three years from the date of payment to get a match from the workers' comp board, and we'll go into what that means in a second. And after they get the match, they have one year from the latest of ANCR or acceptance of the claim, uh, the date of payment for the services at issue, the match date, uh, the hemp rules and regulations effective date, which is June 1st, 2016, so that's really never a measure for timeliness anymore. Uh, and the biggest issue here uh, that I like to stress about the hemp one claims is that uh, these can show up after a section 32. So you could have resolved your case full and final. And if medical treatment shows up from the outset of the case, could have even been as much as three years ago, uh, you might have back end exposure from an initial emergency surgery that you never saw coming. So how can we possibly see these coming? That's what we're going to go over today. So how does the health insurer get a match from the board? So this is where the, the name health insurance matching program and hemp one comes from to begin with. So the board collects data and health insurers electronically submit info uh, regularly, generally quarterly uh, for a search called the reimbursement request. So you'll see on the hemp one form itself, there'll be a box that says date reimbursement request filed. That is not the date that the hemp one demand is served. That's the date they requested a match from the board. It's odd nomenclature. I don't know why they phrased it that way, but uh, that is what the reimbursement request is. When they ask the board if there's a match on the data that they submit, uh, the board then notifies the health insurer whether they got a full match or a partial match. Uh, a hemp can only be served after a full match, and the board is generally going to respond to one of these reimbursement requests within 30 days. At least that's the guideline they're supposed to follow. All right. So how is the HEMP-1 demand made? Well, uh, the health insurer is required to use the HEMP-1 form with part one completed. So if you've ever seen the HEMP-1 form, there's parts one, two, and three. Part one is the request for reimbursement. Part two is the carrier response. Part three is the health insurer's request for arbitration. Everyone has to swap this form back and forth. If they send you the HEMP-1 form and they fill out part one, when you object, you have to fill out part two. And then when they get the completed part two, if they wanna file for arbitration, they have to fill out part three and then serve it on you again. So this HEMP1 form goes back and forth between the parties. Um, section 325-6.3C of the HEMP rules and regulations specifies exactly what needs to be included in one of these demands. Uh, the HEMP1 form itself, in addition to what's in 6.3C, and 6.3C says, you know, you need to have uh, copies of the provider bills and uh, with itemized billing codes and paid expenses and 
uh, information about the claimant and you need to include proof of ANCR or acceptance. Uh, basically, they need to be able to prove their claim. Uh, but in addition to what's in 6.3C, uh, the HIMP-1 form itself has a little certification above where they sign off on part one that says that notice was mailed to the carrier and proof of service is attached. So generally, uh, or not generally, on occasion, you will just get a HIMP-1 form with nothing attached to it but a payment ledger. That is technically defective under the HIMP rules and regulations. Uh, and once you get this HIMP-1 form, you have 90 days to respond. All right, so let's get into the meat of this presentation. How can you see one of these coming? I brought up the nightmare scenario where you settle your case full and final section 32, and then all of a sudden $100,000 cervical fusion surgery from the date of loss uh, comes trickling through the door that the claimant's private health insurer paid for. Well, um, the most obvious one by far, uh, you go to the party of interest tab on eCase, right? And if you see a health insurer and a hemp agent, and what do I mean by hemp agent? There are companies that are specifically retained to go out and pursue these hemp on reimbursement requests. Healthcare Subrogation Group, AKA HCSG is a big one. Rawlings Company is another big one. Meridian, HMS, uh, the, those are the hemp agents. But you'll see the health insurer and the hemp agent as a party of interest in the E case. That's gonna mean that a reimbursement request was submitted to the board and they got at least a partial match on it. Uh, so when else can you see the HIMP one coming other than just the party of interest tab? Well, if there's a CA.1B resolved in our favor, everyone knows what the language says in that proposed decision, right? Per section 13F, claimant is not responsible for payment. Well, okay, well, who is that? Uh, the claimant's not paying out of pocket. We're not liable for payment. How is this provider getting paid for the services? Chances are the claimant's health insurer. The provider's gonna submit it even though they know they shouldn't. Uh, and that's extremely problematic. They're not supposed to submit requests for uh, reimbursement to a health insurer when they know it's workers' comp. That's not allowed under the workers' comp law. They wanna get paid and a lot of them do it anyway. Um, so CA.1 resolved in your favor, particularly significant value to the CA.1, high probability that a hemp is eventually gonna show up. Um, ask if we are not responsible and the claimant is not responsible, how is the doctor actually getting paid? Uh, when you look at that sort of situation, you can see where hemp exposure might arise. So let's go over some issues emphasizing that point. Emergency room treatment on the date of loss or early in the case. This is by far the most common hemp one scenario that there is. Uh, somebody goes in, you know, via ambulance to the hospital, they get treatment. Um, you know, the doctor's asking them, oh, who's your, uh, who's your health insurer? And they take out their ID card out of their wallet and that health insurer gets billed. And then, you know, 30 days later it comes out, oh, this is a workers' comp case and there's a FROI filed with the board and uh, everything else that goes along with filing the workers' comp claim. That health insurer is allowed to get reimbursed for the initial causally related medical treatment. Uh, so where else might a hemp pop up? Very obvious one, denied claims. Uh, particularly if there's a lot of medical treatment at the outset and we're denying, you know, on an issue separate from causal relationship. Uh, especially if we prevail on that denial, you can bet that these workers or these medical bills are going to be submitted to the workers' comp carrier. Uh, similar to the denied claims, uh, disputed or consequential injury sites. So the claimant continues to treat while causal relationship is under litigation. Uh, so you might see that someone tries, you know, they have a knee injury and they try to add a causally related other knee injury, the lateral injury or the lateral knee injury. 
and we haven't established that this consequential injury is causally related, well, they're still getting medical treatment for it in the interim, so who's paying for that? Um, MG2 or C4 auth denials, another very, very common one. We're gonna find that we're not responsible for paying these, we'll deny the MG2 or we'll get an IME, deny the C4 auth, uh, and you know the board might even determine, uh, no, the MG2 variance request is not granted, uh, but the claimant gets the treatment anyway. Well, we're not paying for it because it was an improper request or improper treatment. Chances are the health insurer is paying for it. Significant surgeries is another one. So many times we actually end up paying the facility, but not the providers. So we'll have payments made to, you know, White Plains Hospital Center, but then all of a sudden the, the anesthesiologist's bill will come through the door several years later. Uh, that happens quite commonly. Um, so just putting this note out there because this is pretty common practice and I don't recommend doing it anymore. Um, be very wary of accepting injury sites in a section 32 settlement agreement. So there will be this disputed injury site and uh, there will be some bills floating around out there that claimants council wants to tie up a neat little bow and just say, oh yeah, carrier accepts the consequential right foot and now we're closing it full and final. Well, guess what you just did? You just gave them a date of ANCR and another year to file that hemp one reimbursement request. Unless it's going to be totally prohibitive to the section 32 proceeding, uh, I do not recommend doing it. And if you're going to do that and just accept an injury site in order to settle the case, see what might be coming your way. Find out what those medical bills that are out there are outstanding. Find out how much they are and decide whether the section 32 is still worth it after that. If there's a foot amputation that's allegedly causally related, you're accepting the right foot might not be worth paying the section 32 at this point because you can bet there's gonna be you know, a $200,000 medical bill that comes in a year after you accept uh, the injury site. That just extended the time for them to file the hemp one demand. All right, so we can investigate the treatment. We're not totally powerless once these things show up. Uh, so this can be found in 6.3F uh, and it authorizes the carrier to request records from the provider. The provider actually is supposed to supply those records within 14 days. Uh, or they might be subject to a potential uh, Section 13D penalty. Uh, that's a removal from the list of authorized board providers. So um, what does a request for records look like in a HIMP-1 investigation? Exactly this. Uh, a letter to the health provider saying, this is, what, uh, this is what the regulation says. This is the potential penalty you're subject to. Uh, and sometimes you're going to get pushback for a HIPAA, but if we have a case that you know the claimant's not actively treating and you know we're closing it for inactivity, sometimes getting a HIPAA you know might light a fire that you otherwise don't want lit. Um, so if you can get away with the demand without including the HIPAA and just enforce the hemp rules and regulations, uh, and you don't want to you know stir a dormant claimant into action, I recommend doing so. Uh, you can issue subpoenas under Workers' Compensation Law Section 119 to compel production if your involuntary demand doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and again, it's a, it's a cost-benefit analysis for the whole thing. How much extra clarity are these records going to actually provide? You know, for instance, if you're trying to say that the treatment exceeded what's provided for by the medical treatment guidelines, well, you don't know uh, the basis for the injections without getting the medical treatment records. So those might defeat or they might help your medical treatment guidelines argument. If you see a whole bunch of acupuncture treatments, you know pretty much per se that's going to be in excess of what's covered by the guidelines. So ask yourself, how much clarity is this going to provide? And could this potentially defeat my objection if we go to arbitration? 
Um, the health insurer cannot unreasonably refuse an extension to allow us to investigate, uh, but we cannot use a records request solely to delay reimbursement or arbitration. So if you get a hemp on demand and you want to go out and get the records and the providers dragging their feet, you are well within your rights to go to the uh, person that signed off on that part one hemp form and say, hey, can you give me another 90 days here? I'm trying to get the records. They're not responding. They cannot unreasonably refuse to grant you that extension. You just can't use that to buy yourself more time as a litigation tactic. All right, how do we object to the hemp one? So uh, we have to serve our objection within 90 days of service of the hemp one. Again, the parties can agree to extend this in writing. Uh, I have to be very clear about that. Make sure you have something to prove that it was extended if it goes to arbitration. Um, you have to object on part two of the form. We talked about that earlier. Uh, but I always recommend supporting your objection with documents or evidence. Um, the reason for this is uh, there are specific filing deadlines once the matter goes to arbitration. So I prefer to have everything out in the open right, at, right out the outset. If we're going to attach medical records in support of our denial, do it. Draft a full objection brief, attach them as exhibits. Because when it goes to arbitration, you have to be able to prove that you timely served any documents in support of your claim on the health insurer. So do it right out of the gate, don't wait. Um, proof of service is required just for us like it is for them. Uh, an affidavit of service and a copy of the mailing envelope will do. Um, the specific objections you can raise are in 12 NYCRR 325-6.4B. There's a grand total of 11 of them and then a catch-all other, which is just any objection that uh, can be made that is not specifically covered or specifically prohibited. And again, full objection brief with exhibits is strongly recommended in high exposure hemp's. So here are our specific objections, just to go over these. No ANCR acceptance, that's an obvious one. The case is ineligible for arbitration or reimbursement if there's no ANCR or acceptance of that injury site. Untimely service of the hemp demand. Remember, we have three years from the date of payment for services for them to get a match and then the latest of one year from ANCR acceptance, one year from the match date, or one year from the date of payment for services uh, to serve that hemp on demand. No causal relationship, another pretty obvious one. Uh, authorization was requested and denied, and the treatment was non-emergent. These are your MG2s and C4 auths. Uh, a fee in excess of the fee schedule. So you have to support this with your fee schedule calculation. And if this is your only objection, you have to pay it at the fee schedule rate. Um, but the good news is it applies in almost every case, and it's going to be substantially less than what the normal cost of the treatment is. Um, bill should have been prorated with another treating provider. Again, you're going to have to be able to prove that. Uh, the carrier cannot determine responsibility for payment from the documents served. So if their response, or I'm sorry, if their request is deficient per 6.3c, all of those, that whole paragraph which describes what they have to include, we will raise this objection. We will say, you didn't give me enough information to figure out whether I'm actually on the hook for payment here. Prior payment to the provider, you have to supply proof, dig out your explanation of benefits forms. Uh, if Even better, if you have copies of the cash checks, uh, that'll work as well. Um, treatment after meds were closed via section 32. Again, this would be treatment after the 32 is approved. Treatment that happens before the 32, you can still be on the hook for. Uh, Section 29 offset, in other words, you're applying, applying a credit from the claimant's third-party settlement against ongoing medical treatment, and my personal favorite treatment outside of the guidelines. And we all know there are more guidelines coming, so this, 
this objection is going to become very relevant in the near future. The catch-all and prohibited objections. So I mentioned that other, uh, number 12 on the hint form, you can interpose any objection that demonstrates that a request for reimbursement should not be made. Um, What's well, a good example of this? Well, a specifically listed objection, uh, or one that's not specifically listed, is out-of-network treatment. Uh, you know, an unauthorized provider where claimant treats out of state uh, and doesn't follow, you know, who we sent them for for diagnostics. Uh, that's an objection you can absolutely raise that's not listed and not prohibited. Uh, the HIMP is not eligible for reimbursement or arbitration if there's no ANCR acceptance. So it's basically dead twice. The demand itself is objectionable. And then even if it goes to arbitration, you can say arbitration is not permissible in this instance. You cannot object based on no prior authorization under workers' compensation law 13A5. I'm going to go into that one during the expert tips portion of this presentation. Uh, the failure of the provider to file required notices so the provider doesn't submit a C4.2, not good enough to object to a hemp one. Treatment excessive or too frequent, unless it's outside the guidelines, and hospitalization excessive or unnecessary, unless it's outside of the guidelines. Arbitration, what happens when we get there? So the uh, designated form is the American Arbitration Association. Uh, if you want an oral hearing, again, I strongly recommend doing this. Uh, you have to request it within 14 days of the arbitration request. So remember I said it's on that part three uh, of the HIMP-1 form. When, you, when that is served, there will be a date they served the request for arbitration on the part three of the HIMP form. You have 14 days to submit your request in writing to the American Arbitration Association for an oral hearing, and the fee is payable at that time. It's $475. In a high-value HIMP, I don't know why you wouldn't give yourself the chance to argue this in person. Uh, the carrier has a 14-day period to object based on improper or untimely service after the uh, AAA issues acknowledgement of the request for arbitration. Either party can be represented by counsel, again, recommended, and you can present witnesses. Who might be a witness to this? The person who made the fee schedule calculation is a great example. Uh, any new objections or evidence must be served within 14 days of the acknowledgement for a desk hearing, or at least 14 days before an oral hearing. If it wasn't served previously, you need an affidavit explaining why this, you know, why this objection just became known to you, why this additional documentary evidence just became available to you. This is why I say serve that objection brief with the exhibits and get it all out there right at the beginning. Uh, and you need proof of service on the health insurer for any additional documentary evidence. Uh, the arbitrator issues a decision within in writing within 30 days of completion of the hearing. You have to pay the award if it's payable within 30 days of the service of that decision. Uh, a request for consideration to the AAA, uh, spoiler alert, generally these go nowhere. It's the same person that made the determination that's going to be reviewing the request for reconsideration. So unless something comes through the door that you weren't able to argue at arbitration, good luck changing their minds. Uh, and appeals are going to be subject to CPLR Article 75. So what's the most common one here is the CPLR 7511, the arbitrator exceeded their authority. Uh, again, you're going to need to so, show some kind of bias or some kind of clear disregard for the law if you're going to prepare, uh, prevail on that appeal. All right, expert tips, my favorite part of this presentation. Um, watch out for informal demands or fishing expeditions. I cannot stress this enough. Um, you will get, as, as nonsensical as this sounds, you will get a 
piece of paper from one of these hemp agents that says, we have determined that you might be on the hook for paying this medical treatment. Kindly cut a check to us for $90,000 and confirm the accepted injury sites. Now, uh, go out and get a match from the board and serve a uh, actual hemp on demand. Uh, and they'll send you notices every 30 days saying, you're running out of time, you're running out of time, you better answer this. It's all just a pressure tactic. Do not fall for it. Take the time to do a full objection. Uh, make sure your fee schedule calculation is defensible if necessary. If you're doing it in-house, make sure that person's comfortable testifying as to how they arrived at their numbers. Uh, there are also outside companies like uh, Quality Review Concepts, QRC. You can have them uh, do an expert fee schedule review for uh, an hourly fee. Uh, and you can ask them whether they'd be willing to testify if necessary, if, if, if it's in a very high value hemp, that with the fee schedule, you knocked down very low. Um, remember that the filing of an MG2 is the doctor's admission that the treatment is inconsistent with the medical treatment guidelines. The doctor's very filing of an MG2 is that doctor saying, I'm aware of what the guidelines allow. I think I need a variance from what they allow. Don't let the health insurer second guess that or relitigate the issue. They might try and say, well, no, actually, this amount of acupuncture is within the guidelines because of X, Y, and Z. No, it's not. Your doctor wouldn't have submitted the MG2 if it was. So uh, the claimant bears the burden in the first instance of proving the compensability of medical treatment, causal relationship, medical necessity. That's under the workers' compensation law. Uh, the health insurer can't second guess the doctor's determination. Don't let him get away with that. Um, you can object based on failure to file a C4 auth. You remember one of the prohibited, object, prohibited objections uh, was objecting based on the provider's failure to file a C4 auth for special services costing in excess of $1,000. Right, you can't, you can't object on that basis. They don't want uh, carriers and health insurers uh, fighting out over how much a treatment costs and whether authorization was needed because the treatment costs over $1,000. However, uh, the medical treatment guidelines have a very specific list of procedures requiring prior authorization, uh, knee arthroplasty, lumbar fusion, uh, any of those ones where it's one of the specifically listed procedures that require C4 auth. If that C4 auth was not filed, that treatment is inconsistent with the medical treatment guidelines. So you still have that objection. You can object based on failure to file a C4 auth if it's for one of those procedures in the guidelines, that specifically require prior authorization. All right, defense and settlement strategy takeaways. Uh, never just pay the hemp one. Do yourself the favor of running, at least running the fee schedule and objecting on that basis. There's a high probability, unless it's for $25, that you are liable for paying less than what the demand is. Look over it. Uh, compare it to the board file. Do your due diligence. Don't just pay it or be intimidated into paying it after you get notices every 30 days saying, if you don't pay this, you're, we're going to take you to arbitration. Remember, your worst case scenario is the fee schedule amount. If you have a defensible fee schedule analysis, the arbitrator cannot direct you to pay more than the fee schedule. This is why I always recommend raising that objection. Uh, make sure the hemp one is compliant and the demand is legitimate. We talked about that. Don't fall for these informal demands. Um, and make sure that it has everything required in 6.3c and everything that the form requires. Run through the objections in part two of the HIMP-1 form one by one. There's 11 listed and then the catch-all 12. See if every one of those or each of them is applicable. Um, ask the following question. Would I have been able to object to this bill if it were properly submitted during the workers' compensation claim? 
The answer to that question is yes. If the doctor had submitted this, would you have been able to object to it on some grounds? Chances are there's a defensible hemp one argument there. Uh, don't be afraid to arbitrate and push for an oral hearing. These guys just want money. They want some money, any money at all. So don't balk. Uh, take them to an oral hearing. Take them to arbitration or force them to go to arbitration. And inevitably, they're going to cave and settle for the fee schedule or sometimes half of the fee schedule or less. Um, look to resolve bulk hemp one submissions in a global settlement, uh, but don't offer payment on hemp that are truly not payable. What, are, what do I mean by that? ones that are clearly untimely or ain't no ANCR or acceptance of the claim. But a lot of times you'll get 10 HIMP-1 demands at once in a bulk submission from one of these HIMP agents. That's a great time to look over all of them at the same time and say, hey, we'll offer you a lump sum of, of X. And that's contingent upon you accepting 50% of the fee schedule in each of these ones where we have strong objections. A uh, good way to save money and avoid serving formal objections in every case. And always, 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 cannot stress this enough, always object to a very large hemp one protectively. Even if you're having the most productive settlement negotiations there are, uh, your nightmare scenario is that on the 89th day and your objection is due on day 90, they say, eh, you know what, we don't want to settle anymore. And if you haven't served that objection, you're going to end up paying more than the fee schedule. Uh, so always, always, if you have a HIMP one that's 50,000 or more, 25,000 or more, whatever your comfort threshold is, always protectively object on the basis of at least the fee schedule. All right, let's get to see if we have any questions here. I'm gonna expand this just to make sure. No, I am not seeing any questions. Uh, but as always, uh, you can reach me via email or call me here at the office. Oops, sorry, moved on a little too quickly. Also, if anyone uh, is interested in a copy of this, we do have the uh, New York Risk Transfer Handbook, which has a chapter on hemp one defense. So if you would like a copy, just uh, send, on, send an email on over to me and I'll make sure you get one. All right, thank you everyone for participating and uh, hopefully I'll see you next month. Happy Valentine's Day.